Greetings and welcome to our next uh, episode of our series of Bible studies in Revelation, which I've entitled Revelation Revisited. Now we have been working our way through from the beginning of uh, the book of Revelation, and we have arrived at chapter 2. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation are devoted to seven letters sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, dictated to John the Apostle, and then transmitted to the seven churches of Asia Minor. And we have already looked at the first of those letters, that is the letter to the church at Ephesus, and uh, that was in our previous episode. Um, uh, by the way, if uh, you're tuning into this series now, you'll find all the previous episodes on the podcast uh, by just clicking at the bottom of each page, the legend previous episodes and that will take you back page by page now we did uh, as i say look at the letter to the church at ephesus <clears throat> but uh, time ran out and we did not consider verse 7 the last verse in this uh, letter and that verse is too important uh, to have dealt with in uh, a couple of minutes at the end of the previous episode. So I'm going to devote the whole of this episode to that verse. And you'll see uh, why this is so important and uh, significant in the context of the seven letters. So let me just read that closing verse revelation chapter 2 and verse 7 he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to him who overcomes i will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of god now you'll notice that uh, that consists of two statements two sentences in fact first of all he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches and then secondly to him who overcomes i will give to eat from the tree of life now these two statements constitute a theme that is reproduced in each of the seven letters. The first sentence is uh, reproduced uh, precisely in exactly the same words in each of the seven letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and you'll notice the plural there churches 
these letters were not sent individually to the particular churches to which they are addressed. Uh, they were all incorporated into the book of Revelation, and it was the whole book that was sent to the seven churches. And so it's quite relevant here that the word is in the plural because it means that every church needed to take notice of what was said to every other church. And that is particularly true of this verse seven. Now the second sentence uh, here is a, is a promise to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, that promise is partially reproduced uh, in each letter uh, uh, to him who overcomes or him, of course, represents he or she, normal uh, Bible practice to represent male and female alike by the word uh, man and the pronouns him and his. Uh, to, to the one who overcomes that, that is common to all the letters or something very similar. The actual promise that is given differs from one letter to uh, another. Uh, so here, for example, the promise is that he will give, Christ will give uh, to the one who overcomes uh, to eat the privilege of eating from the tree of life. Uh, and as we move through, we'll find that each church has a different promise attached to it. But uh, we're going to look at that promise for the church at Ephesus first, before we try to identify uh, who are the people who are said to overcome. Uh, incidentally, that word overcome is basically uh, a word uh, meaning to gain the victory. And in some translations, uh, in the ESV, for example, it is translated conquer, to him who conquers. But uh, I don't particularly like that translation. It's perfectly legitimate translation, but uh, in our modern usage of words, to conquer is a, a rather strongly military term and um, a triumphalist term, if you like. And I think what is being spoken of here is winning through the difficulties, problems, hardships, persecutions, and vicissitude of life. It's not a conquest so much as a winning through or an overcoming of our circumstances and of the things that are against us as Christians in this life. But I want to look at the promise first because that 
is going to shed light upon what it means to be an overcomer. It is going to help us identify who are these people who overcome. So uh, let us take a look at the reward offered in Revelation 2 and verse 7, which is to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, uh, the allusion there, I think, is, is fairly obvious, but let me turn you back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis, in which the tree of life is mentioned, obviously, for the first time. Let's read a few verses, Genesis chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden. And then in uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day, the day that you eat, the fruit of it, you shall surely die. And then we move on to chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, uh, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. And so he, this is verse 24 now, so he drove out the man and he placed cherubim in the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Well, I think it's fairly obvious that uh, Revelation 2 verse 7 is referring us back to these passages in the book of Genesis. Adam and Eve were given the liberty to eat every fruit of every tree in the garden, including the tree of life, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And of course they disobeyed, they did take the fruit of that tree, and as a consequence, they were excluded, sent out from the Garden of Eden. And that was specifically to prevent them taking fruit from the tree of life. Because, Scripture says, they would then live forever in their state of sin and rebellion. Uh, well now, 
it, it seems to me that it's unavoidable then that the tree of life, or more specifically the fruit of the tree of life, is a reference to the possession of everlasting life. And apart from the book of Genesis, the tree of life is only mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, and that is not only in the verse we're looking at, Revelation 2 and verse 7, but also in the description of heaven in Revelation chapter 22. Uh, let me read just one of those references in Revelation 22. It's verse 14. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. The city, of course, is there uh, a representation of, of heaven. And in that city, the tree of life is mentioned also as being present along the sides of the river. Both sides of the river is the tree of life bearing 12 fruits and those fruits are born in their season. So we have uh, this perfectly clear picture that the tree of life was present in the Garden of Eden, that man after his disobedience was excluded from that garden and from access to the tree. And then the tree of life turns up again only in heaven, where access, of course, implies our ability to enter heaven and our right to be there. So there can be no doubt that the tree of life is a picture of eternal life. And that eternal life is something that is given by the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the only source of eternal life. When the Lord said to Peter, or said to his disciples, will you also go away? Peter replied with these words, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And of course, in John chapter 3, verse 15, the Gospel of John, verse 3, 15, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Faith in Christ is a necessity if we are to have eternal life. And then, of course, in John chapter 10, uh, we have it expressed even more clearly. The Lord Jesus Christ says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. And I give to them eternal life, and nobody will ever pluck them or snatch them from my hand. I give them eternal life. The wages of sin is death. Paul writes in Romans 6 and verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I have made it clear ever since we started this series of studies in the book of Revelation that the main purpose of the book of Revelation is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and here we have another example of that. Uh, Jesus Christ is glorified because he is the giver of eternal life, the one and only source of that life. And he gives eternal life through faith in him. It is by our faith in Jesus Christ, our faith that he is indeed the Son of the living God, that he is indeed the second person of the triune God, that he did indeed come into this world in order to seek and save that which was lost, that he did indeed die upon the cross to bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that by dying he did pay the penalty and bear the guilt of our sin that we might be made free of those things. God made him to be sin for us. Paul writes in, uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and verse 21, God made him to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He saves us and gives us eternal life by joining us with himself. And it is a great truth that perhaps is not always sufficiently appreciated, uh, that Christ did not only die as our substitute in our place, but that in dying and rising again, we who believe in him become joined to Christ for all eternity. Our righteousness is in Christ, our, our right to enter heaven is in Christ. Our eternal life consists of being in Christ because he is an eternal being. And as long as we are united with him, we too will live eternally. And of course, not only live eternally, but enjoy uh, the glories and blessings of the heavenly condition and God's future purpose for mankind. So then we have the understanding here that the people in Ephesus who overcame are people who are qualified for heaven. Overcomers are believers 
overcomers have eternal life. And all who have eternal life must therefore be overcomers. And I think that is rather uh, important for us to grasp. I think sometimes the overcomers in the letters uh, in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are thought of as some special triumphant Christians. Uh, but no, what we are seeing here is that overcomers are all true Christians, all who have been born again by the Spirit of God. And all who have been born by the Spirit of God are overcomers. The Lord Jesus said that those who endure to the end will be saved after the tribulation uh, that he describes in Matthew's Gospel. And, and this realization that the overcomers are regenerate, born-again, believing Christians, trusting only in Christ for their salvation, does have two implications and these are important and i'm going to end this session by working these out with you the first implication is that not everybody in the church in ephesus would overcome the seventh verse of chapter two is addressed to individuals not to the church as a corporate entity and individuals are told that if they overcome they will eat of the fruit of the tree of life that is they will be given eternal life now that does imply at least that each member individually of the church in Ephesus needed to examine himself or herself uh, to see whether they are truly in the faith. And uh, sadly, I think uh, we are all conscious of the fact that there are many in churches today throughout the world who profess to be Christians but are not born again. They're not real Christians. They're only going through the motions of religion. They are not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they have not been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. They are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And they will not overcome. And they will not inherit eternal life. And so we have to face up to that fact. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself said in that day, speaking, I suppose, of the day of judgment, in that day many shall say, Lord, did we not do many wonderful works in your name? Did we not cast out demons and so on? And he says, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you this is a possibility and the new testament has that in mind all the time uh, many passages which warn us uh, to examine ourselves and to be 
sure that we are truly heirs of eternal life. So that's the negative implication. But there's also a very positive implication. Because as I pointed out earlier, the expression, he who overcomes or the one who overcomes, occurs in every epistle. It occurs in all seven epistles. And that means that the different promises that are given to overcomers, different in every, every one of the seven letters, every one of those overcomers and the different promises that they will inherit apply to all Christians, to all believers. So it's only a beginning of God's blessing that we see in the participation of heaven, the eating of the tree of life, the inheritance of eternal life. That's the start. But as we move through the other epistles, the other six letters to the churches, we shall find other promises attached to those who overcome. So you see, the logic is this, that if by definition in our present text, overcomers are believers and believers are overcomers, then it does mean that every true believer will benefit from the promises made in each of the seven letters. And that is a cumulative blessing that is very rich indeed, as we shall see as we work our way through these letters. So next time we, we should be looking at the second of those letters.